Part four of our series, The Meaningful Life, is that work is meaningless. We're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 to 26. Solomon writes, So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave it all, and leave all they own to another, who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless, and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun. All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. To the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth, to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is God's word. So like I said, we're in this series on Ecclesiastes. We're not going to cover the entire book of Ecclesiastes. We're really just introing the idea so that you on your own can study the rest of the book. We're getting the first two chapters, and we're going to get the very end of the book next week. But I would encourage you to study through the rest of this book on your own with the principles that you've learned about the meaningless, the vaporous nature of life under the sun in a world without windows so that you can find a meaningful life in God. So today's topic is work is meaningless. I met an antique, a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's an excerpt from Percy Bysshe Shelley's 19th century poem, Ozymandias. I'll read it again for you to see if you can understand what Shelley is getting at. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Do you catch what Percy Bysshe Shelley is trying to communicate in his poem? He imagines a traveler who he meets who tells him the story of a statue like the one you can see on the screen. A statue of a great pharaoh. Ozymandias is another name for Ramses II, pharaoh of Egypt, who at one time was arguably the greatest person on the face of the earth. He had the most control over the most land and people of anybody at his time. 
And yet he identifies the irony of the fact that now, hundreds of years later, all that is left of Ozymandias is a crumbled statue in the middle of a barren desert with a pedestal that claims glory that no longer belongs to Ozymandias. What would it be like to be a pharaoh? You ever thought that? To have everything at your fingertips? To have every person listen to everything you say no matter what? Or to be Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes? who said in the book, I denied myself nothing that a man's heart desires. And yet where are Ozymandias, Ramses II, and Solomon? They're gone. The things that they worked for, arguably some of the greatest men who have ever lived on the planet Earth, they are nothing. Their claims to fame are simply an echo in some old documents. Everything they worked for was meaningless. And the same is true of the famous people of our age. And you maybe don't know Ozymandias. You barely know Solomon, maybe only because you're a Christian and you read the Bible. But there are people today that you know, you understand things about their lives, things that they have produced. You recognize many of the faces on the screen right now. But in a couple hundred or maybe thousand years, their names will be simply an echo if they're remembered at all. All the work that they will put in, all the beautiful things that they will create will be meaningless. And some of you are actually starting to experience that. If you're a little bit older and you're a fan of a musical artist, maybe from your childhood or your teen years, you still think that that artist is fantastic, but you're starting to meet young people who have never heard of him. I just listened to a a pastor preach a sermon where he referenced Simon and Garfunkel, and he was singing a Simon and Garfunkel song. Now, I happen to be a 33-year-old knows who Simon and Garfunkel is, but I didn't know that song. Which means Simon and Garfunkel, arguably one of the greatest musical acts of the modern age, is already starting to be forgotten. Their work is meaningless. That's the topic that we're talking about today. Work is meaningless. And for my money, this is the one that's going to hit the closest to home for our culture, because our culture is obsessed with finding our purpose, our meaning in our work. Who you are is what you produce. Let me show you how this is the case. What's one of the first questions you ask somebody when you meet them for the first time? What do you do? What do you do? Besides maybe, where are you from? That's arguably the first question we're going to ask a person. Does it not show that our culture assumes that one of the most meaningful, the most significant things about who you are as a person is what you do for your employment? I mean, we could have asked any number of questions to to get to know a person, but one of the first questions we always ask is, what do you do? But then let me press you on this a little bit more. Look at the question. How open-ended is that question? It's not a question of, what do you do for your employment? It's a question of everything that you do. Now, you and I both know, when we ask this question, we're asking about employment. But do you realize, even the way we structure our language betrays the fact that we think that the only really meaningful thing that you actually do is your employment. You could answer this question with a hobby, You could answer it with, I'm a husband, or a wife, or a parent. You could say, I actually sleep a whole lot. That's one of the things I do. But we all know that's not what the question is asking. We know the question is asking about employment because we subtly believe the only really meaningful thing that you do is your work. And some of you know this because you're not working. If a couple of you right now are unemployed and you've said to me that Not having a job gives you a feeling of meaninglessness, a feeling of purposelessness. What are you getting up for in the morning? 
Well, you've been inculcated by your culture to believe that you're not meaningful, you're not purposeful unless you are working. Or maybe you're working, but you're working in a job that you don't particularly like, or it doesn't seem to pay the bills, or it's not where you want to be, and you feel dissatisfied. Even though your work might actually be helping people, might actually be helping our economy or helping people with their needs, you still don't feel purposeful, meaningful in your work because it's not satisfying for you. Or some of you work in things that are not typically called work. I'm thinking of those of you who are stay-at-home moms. Your work is arguably longer hours and harder than many jobs that actually pay, and yet you don't feel satisfied in it. Because it doesn't qualify as what our culture thinks of as work. See, we're inculcated to believe that the only meaningful things that we actually do in our life are work. But Solomon is here in the book of Ecclesiastes to tell us that actually work is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. It is a vapor. It is pleasant for a moment. It may give you this feeling of meaning, but it isn't actually going to last. It isn't going to give you the meaning you seek after. So if you're following along with me in the notes, I'm going to go to point two and show you a number of reasons why work, as we conceive of it as our culture, is meaningless. The first of those is that sometimes work doesn't work. Sometimes work doesn't work. You put in the time, but you can't seem to accomplish your goals. You put in the time, but what comes out of your work isn't as satisfying as you hoped it would have been. Sometimes work doesn't work because the world isn't consistent. The world isn't consistent. You can work the way that you're supposed to work at the thing that you want to work at, but there are so many things outside your control that no matter how well or how hard you work at work, sometimes work doesn't work. Ecclesiastes says this really well in chapter 9. Solomon tells us, I have seen something else out of the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Do you understand what he's saying? You can be brilliant or smart or strong or capable, but it doesn't really matter. Because there are so many things outside of your control as to whether you will be successful in your work. This is true maybe most obviously in something that I know a lot of you find your meaning in, which is raising your children. But you can do all the right things for your children. You can feed them all the right food. You can give them all the right educational opportunities. You can put them in all the right activities. You can socialize them all the right ways. And things can turn out terribly wrong. Some of you maybe have experienced that if your kids are a little bit older. You thought you were doing everything right. You maybe were. But your kids didn't turn out the way that you wanted them to. I was reminded of a story from a number of years ago, back in the year 2000, uh, a man named Prince Jones. Do you know this name? He's a resident of Fairfax County, Virginia, so right around Washington, D.C. He was a black man who had everything going for him. He was highly educated, he was highly successful, and yet he was killed at the hand of police. And the reason I bring him up is not just to name another name of a black man who has been killed at the hand of police, but to, to illustrate to you a really cool thing that a friend of his named Tanahisi Coates, who was a journalist, wrote about Prince Jones. Uh, Tanahisi wrote in his book that actually was just published a couple years ago in 2016 that we should, quote, think of all the love that was poured into him. 
Think of the tuitions for Montessori and music lessons. Think of the gasoline expended, the treads worn carting him to football games, basketball tournaments, and Little League. Think of the time spent regulating sleepovers. Think of the surprise birthday parties, the daycare, and the reference checks on babysitters. Think of the checks written for family photos. Think of the credit cards charged for vacations. Think of soccer balls, science kits, chemistry sets, racetracks, and model trains. Think of all the embraces, all the private jokes, customs, greetings, names, dreams, all the shared knowledge and capacity of a black family injected into that vessel of flesh and bone. And think of how that vessel was taken, shattered on the concrete, and all its holy contents, all that had gone into him, sent flowing back to the earth. Now I use that just because it is beautifully written and illustrates an important point. That no matter what you do, no matter how well you work at something that is so important to you, there are a thousand things in this world that could take it from you in a moment. Work doesn't work sometimes because the world is inconsistent. Work also doesn't work because sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you just can't work at that thing that you want to work at. You have goals, you have dreams, you have things that you wish you could have, but you know that you are not capable of actually achieving those things. Work isn't meaningful because the thing that you actually want, you can't get. This is maybe a dumb example, but I know for some of you in our economy, you would like to buy a home, but you know because of your opportunities that it's probably not going to happen. It might be something that you find as meaningful, as foundational about who you are as a person or as a family, but you just can't. This may be because you're just not given the skills or the opportunities to do the thing that you want to do, or finally you run up against your age, and the things that you wish you could have accomplished, you're no longer able to because your body or your mind is breaking down. Sometimes work doesn't work. But sometimes it does. Sometimes work does work, but the results aren't enough. Sometimes you actually do accomplish what you set out to accomplish, but the thing that you receive on the other end of your accomplishment is not enough for you. Now, as I think about this, I think there are really three things that people work for. Now, there might be more, but at least the majority of people are going to fit into these three categories. Generally, people work for money, for reputation, or for altruism. For money, for reputation, or for altruism. And yet all three of these are meaningless. First, think about money. We've been told from young that money is not going to get you happiness. And I could put a thousand quotes up on the screen of how that is true. People have said that over time, but let me just give you a couple that I think are particularly poignant. Local boy Jim Carrey, actor, said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Or John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest people who has ever lived on this continent, when asked how much money was enough, he said... A little bit more. See, even though we have been taught from early on that money does not actually buy happiness, we continue to pursue it. And Solomon identified this too. If you look at Ecclesiastes 5, he writes, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Maybe we would be more attuned to a quote from Groucho Marx, who said, while money can't buy you happiness, it certainly lets you choose your own form of misery. Which is really the case for us, isn't it? We pursue and we pursue this thing that never seems to satisfy, in fact, in many cases, it just makes us more miserable. 
That's because money is meaningless. I don't want to get too much into monetary theory, but the actual concept of money is just meaningless on its surface. You hold up a plastic $20 bill, what is that worth? A fraction of a cent for the little piece of plastic that you're holding in your hand. If you say it's worth $20, that's only because you believe a story that our culture tells ourselves about that piece of plastic. That that thing is worth exchanging for work or for goods. But really, in the reality of the world that we live in, it is simply a piece of plastic. You know, Americans, they make fun of us Canadians because our money is all different colors, which, by the way, I think is brilliant because it makes it way easier to decipher which bill you're taking out of your wallet, but I love living here, I digress. Both Americans and Canadians and all those people who use any sort of currency should be able to admit it's all monopoly money. It's not real. It's a story we tell ourselves about value. And you know this. You know that a government can just print more money and make $20 not worth $20 anymore. You know that financial markets can take money from you without working for it in the same, excuse me, in the same way that you can get money in interest without working for it. Money is simply a mechanism, a story that we tell ourselves. It's meaningless. It doesn't actually gain value unless everyone around you believes the same story. And what happens when that story collapses? I certainly hope it doesn't. That would be terrible. But it is only a little bit of mistrust that leads to the collapse of a currency. It's all meaningless. And even if it is valuable, what is it actually getting us? Like Groucho Marx said, it's really only buying us our own form of misery. The things that are going to only make us happy for a little while until there's a new one, a better one, a more attractive one, a faster one. Money doesn't get us much. So some people don't work for money. Some people work for reputation. They say the dollars are here or there. I need them to survive, whatever. But what I really care about is I want to be respected. I want to be noticed. I want to be valued for the things that I do. I want to make a name for myself with the work that I do. But this, too, is meaningless. This is the story of Ozymandias, right? We started this sermon by quoting for Percy Bysshe Shelley about the greatest man who had lived on the face of the planet, Ramses II, and how nobody knows who that guy is anymore. I mean, really, how many of us could raise our hand and say we knew who Ozymandias was when I said that? And then if you didn't know Ozymandias, you maybe knew Ramses II, but how many of us can tell us to tell the year that Ramses began to rule in Egypt? None of us know. Right, because the work that he put in was ultimately meaningless. The reputation that he built for himself of being the greatest person on the face of the planet ultimately didn't matter. And he was awesome. Like, no offense, I'm with you on this. We're pretty ordinary folks here. Like, the work that we're going to do, the things that we're going to accomplish will last nowhere near as long as someone like him. Solomon says it like this in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7, he says, A good name is better than fine perfume, so it's better than money. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. Then he says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. In other words, he says, your name doesn't really matter. Well, objectively, from his spiritual worldview, yes, a good name is more important. At the end of the day, a good name is no more important than the enjoyment that you get from eating a good steak or drinking a good glass of wine. It's all meaningless. So some people don't do money, and they don't go for reputation. They do it out of altruism. If you don't know the term, altruism is doing something with an ethical end in mind, doing it for the right reasons, we might say. They say, okay, I don't need the dollars. I don't even really need anybody to know my name. I just want to change the world. I want to make the world a better place. 
Now, this one's a little bit tricky uh, because actually, from a Christian worldview, and what we'll see in a few seconds, is that doing things for the right reasons, doing things to make the world a better place, is a meaningful action. The problem with working for altruism is that people who work for altruism often can't answer the question why they're working for altruism. Why are you trying to change the world? Why are you trying to make it a better place? If all we have is a world under the sun, a world without windows, a meta narrative without the divine or the supernatural or the transcendent, then there's no reason to change the world. There's no reason to make it a better place. It's all going to burn anyways or freeze in the death of the sun. It doesn't matter. It's meaningless. And by the way, while you're at it, why do you think that your conception of what makes the world a better place is the right conception of what makes the world a better place? What makes you think that your idea of progress is actually progressing our society towards something good? I mean, Adolf Hitler thought he was progressing society. He thought he was making the world a better place, and none of us would say that what he was doing was meaningful. So it's, tr- it's true, you can do things for altruism. For the right reasons, it can be meaningful. But without a meta narrative that goes beyond this world, you have no reason why. Sometimes work doesn't work. Sometimes it does, but the results aren't enough. But then finally, to sort of put the nail in the coffin, Solomon tells us that you're going to give away the results anyways. Like nothing that you work for, even if it is good, even if it actually does make the world a better place, even if you build a name or a wealth for yourself, you are going to give it away. That was the point of the text that we read at the beginning of the sermon from chapter 2. He said, I hated the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Solomon says that you can build up all of the things that you think are valuable, the things that are meaningful in this life, and all you're going to do is hand them on to the next person. And who knows what they'll do with them? Who knows what your kids will do with the money that you leave them? Who knows what people will do with the knowledge that you've spoken to them? Who knows what people will do with your reputation someday? Who knows if somebody else will just come and counteract the thing that you did to change the world? Ultimately, everything that you're working for, if it is under the sun, it is meaningless. And I really think we should meditate on this just for a few more seconds. Just to remind ourselves, this is the main point of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is getting us to believe that if we see our life as without God, without connection to him, without relationship to him, then all we have is a few years on this planet that's going to eventually die. And there will be no one here to know any of the good things that we did or any of the bad things that we committed. It won't matter in the end. So what do we do? Our work sometimes doesn't work. Sometimes it does, but the results are not actually meaningful. And ultimately, even if we do get something that gives us a little bit of meaning for our time, it's all going away anyways. Well, the answer is to flip the narrative on its head. While most people would say that work is what gives them meaning, what we as Christians uniquely can say is that our meaning leads us to work. That actually our meaning is not bound up in the work that we do, but our meaning is bound up in something far more transcendent. That there is a God who created the world perfectly and who put human beings in it. 
And despite the fact that those human beings corrupted and destroyed all of God's good creation, God saw fit to step into that creation in order to redeem them, to bring them back from the death that they had earned for themselves, to set them free from the misery that they continued to buy for themselves. And then he left and gave that ministry of reconciling people to God to Christians. He gave that message of the kingdom to people like you and me. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus isn't walking around on planet Earth anymore. But you are, and your spirit, his spirit, dwells in you. Which means that you have meaning. Not if you're working, but because you are. You exist. God made you. God baptized you. God feeds you with his word and his sacrament. You matter because God says you matter. And because you matter, and because God keeps you here, you have a meaning that will lead you to work. You will see the world as something worth valuing, as a place worth making better, filled with people who are worth loving because God says that they are worth loving. You could say this a different way. You could say work doesn't tell our story. Our story tells us to work. See, when Jesus came, he preached one message. It came in a thousand different ways, but really what he was saying, if you look at statistically the thing he talked about the most, it was the kingdom of God. Jesus came to give the message of the kingdom of God, and that is our story. We are subjects in an eternal kingdom where the king has declared that he is king of kings, not like Ozymandias, but king over all kings for all time. And he is not dead. He is not a statue. He is alive and living right now, and you live in his kingdom, and that is your story. And this kingdom needs workers. It needs needs workers to accomplish the work that God has set out for us. So two ways that you can have meaningful work. The first is to work for the kingdom of heaven. To realize that what we are living in right now is not all that there is, but there is something that is coming later. And that kingdom of heaven needs to be populated with the people whom God loves. And so your job as one whom God has called is to bring that message of reconciliation, that good news that people's sins are forgiven, not because they're good or getting better, but because Christ has died and Christ has risen. You are living for something far bigger. And you're living for right now. You work for the kingdom on earth. Christians are not only concerned with someday getting to heaven. If we were, and if that was what the Bible taught, we would all not be here. God would have saved us and got us out. But he leaves us here because the kingdom continues to expand here on this earth. And your work has value in that kingdom. You may say, well, I don't do anything for the church. I'm just a, a construction worker. I'm, I'm just working in finance. I'm just an admin assistant, whatever. No, the work that you do actually matters because it does make the world a better place. It allows the citizens of our country, the people of our city, to live calm and peaceful lives. It allows value to be added to people, care to be taken for them, these people whom God loves. See, God's kingdom is not just a theological idea. It is the restoration of the perfect creation that God had made at the beginning of the world. And you shine a little bit of that light. You restore a little bit of that perfection. And you work hard at the things that God has given you. The Lutheran theologians call this the doctrine of vocation. But God has called you with your unique gifts, your unique situation, your unique personality, your unique sex and skin color and abilities to be his hands and feet and mouth in the world, to do the things that he has prepared you and you alone to accomplish for the sake of the kingdom. 
So as you think about whatever you do, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're an exec in an office, remember what Paul writes to the Colossians. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, and may we serve him well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the various vocations that you have given us, both those for which we are employed and are paid and those which simply add value on the basis of the the inherent value you give to all people. We pray that you would bless all of us with diligence and energy in the, excuse me, in the work that you, we do, and that you would work out the results of our work for the benefit of others. And then finally, that you would draw our eyes up to you. As we do our work, we think less about our boss or our shareholders or our fellow employees or customers, but that we would think about what you think of our work, and that we would trust that the work that you require is this, to believe in the one you have sent. We ask those things in your name. Amen.